Good morning. Now, this whole week, uh, I have been bombarded with people giving me a hard time about how now I'm a Miley Cyrus fan. Because the video last week, if you remember, uh, they played The Climb by Miley Cyrus during that. You can look at it uh, online if you want, if you weren't here last week. And somebody went as far as to uh, go ahead and send this to Chris, my biggest fan, Love Miley. And so um, I want you to know that I don't have anything against Miley, but I'm not her biggest fan. But I am a fan of people who live down south. There's something about southern hospitality that just resonates with my spirit. And I've often told Jennifer, you know, I want to retire there uh, someday. We probably won't. Maybe South Muncie is probably where we'll retire. But but, uh, we just feel such a connection there. Part of that's my mom's uh, side of the family. Uh, are from the South. Uh, my mom, uh, her family is from Kentucky and, and Tennessee. Just wonderful people. Uh, just some of the most generous, caring, kind, uh, giving people uh, that I know of. And they're just people of integrity. If they say they're going to do something, they do it. And, and uh, they're strong work ethic. Just, uh, just great people. And, and they love to have fun. Nothing like a family reunion picnic uh, with them or, or just enjoying that time. And they're awesome people. Now, most of my family uh, lives in Perry County, Kentucky. You know that if you're from Kentucky, they never name the city. They say what county you're from. And uh, they don't actually say Perry County down there. They say Perry County. Uh, and that's... Uh, part of the language there. And they say words sometimes uh, that are a little bit different. And so I thought I would just go ahead and put a couple words up here today, what people say in the South. Here's the first one, uh, sensuous. Uh, I can remember my Aunt Clara telling me this all the time. Uh, sensuous up, why don't you get me a Pepsi? Okay. Now, it, there's three words there, since you are, but... Sensuous, that's it. Here's another one. Uh, it's pronounced Ezermai. Okay? Ezermai. And if you've ever been to a family reunion with people from the South, they'll come up to you and they'll say, These are my cousins, these are my kids, these are my aunts and uncles. You know? Uh, these are my. And here's a word. I don't know if you can pronounce this word or not, but my, uh, my cousin, Delcy Banks, uh, I remember one time we were down there and he had this dog, straight dog, got in his yard and he goes, get on up out of here, like that. <laughs> just one word. Get up on out of here, okay? Just one word. Get up on out of here. No, no, just get up on out of here. Well, I was thinking about it this week and there are many words that we pronounce the word, but there's actually multiple different words that are in the midst of that. For example, this word here, ginormous, did you know that that word's actually in the dictionary? Now, that's strange, don't you think? Because ginormous is really two words. 
What are the two words? Gigantic and enormous. So gigantic and enormous, like this word. Here's another word, paranoid. You know what a paranoid is? You know what that means? The fear of becoming just like your parents. <laughs> now, that's really not a word, but it should be. You know what I mean? And uh, how about this one? Yo guy. This is the only guy that's in the yoga class. Okay? I think we have a picture there, Derek. <laughs> you don't want to be that guy. Just, just saying. Now, here's another one that I found after years of working with people, and it's called hypophinriac. Hypophinriac. You know what that is? That's a person who's sick, but they tell people all the time, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Well, I want to share with you a story this morning, a story that is found in John chapter 5. Now, John, you might remember... Uh, was Jesus' closest disciple. He's the only one that was at the foot of the cross when, when Jesus died. He actually took on the responsibilities of being the son for Jesus' uh, mother Mary. And John tells a story one day in which uh, he connected uh, to Jesus. And in this story, this is what his experience was. So in John chapter 5, Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Now let's stop there just for a second. So at this time, Jerusalem's a city, and there's this big wall that is all around it. And there are different gates that you can go through to get into the city. And one of these gates was called the Sheep Gate. Now, why do you think they called it that? Because that's where they brought the sheep, right? And so they would bring the sheep there, and there was a pool of water that was at that gate as well, where they would allow the sheep to uh, get a drink. And also, at the Sheep Gate, there were these five colonnades, or five porches. And at these five porches, there were canopies over each one of them, and the sick would sit underneath each one of those until they saw the water stirring. And they felt that any time that the water stirred, that that was an angel stirring the water, and the first person who came into it would be healed. So, that's the setting. Now the scripture goes on. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Now, I read that scripture dozens of times, and every single time I would read it, I was like, that is the dumbest question Jesus has ever asked in his life. I mean, why in the world would he have said, do you want to get well? 
I mean, if for 38 years you've been an invalid and you haven't been able to walk, of course you want to get well. But this is what I found after working with people for many different years, is that I've learned that this is not such a dumb question because there are some people who are hypophyriacs. They know they're sick. They know they have a problem. They know that things could get better, but they really don't want to get well. And this could be for a number of reasons. It could be for a number of things that keep them from getting well. For some people, it's image management. They say, I'm okay. I'm fine. Nobody needs to know the struggle that I have. Nobody needs to know that. And yet below the surface, man, they are like drowning because they can't be set free. They don't want to get well. Maybe it's pride where they say, I don't want to show my weakness. Reaching out for help is a sign of weakness. I can beat this thing. I can do this on my own. Or maybe it's fear. You know, as strange as it seems, some people fear change more than they fear the damage that the hurt, the habit, or the hang-up is causing them. As miserable as they might feel, they would rather keep the habit because the habit is like an old pair of shoes. They fit, it seems fine, everything's good. And so they fear the challenge of breaking in a new pair of shoes and having to walk in a new direction. So it's not a dumb question that Jesus asks. Do you want to get well? And I've got some good news for you guys this morning. If you want to get well, if you really want to get well, I think you're at the right place. Because it's at this place where I think God can move in your life and make you whole, make you well. And over the next six weeks, that's what we're going to be trying to promote. How do we get well? I hope that you're more whole at the end of this six weeks than you are right now. About breaking through the surface and actually being able to breathe in a new way. This is a series about people becoming fully alive, being totally open, not denying things, and walking with God with joy and hope and purpose in your veins. And I really do believe that at the end of this six weeks, that if you commit and you say, you know what, I'm going to do it, and if you miss a week, that you say, hey, I'm going to listen to it on the, uh, you know, on the website, that this really could change your life. It could change families. It could change your relationship with your kids. You see, some of you, have been bogged down by chains for a while, and God is like, I want to break you free. So let me ask you this morning, what keeps you from walking free? I mean, really walking free. What is the thing that you struggle with? Is it anxiety? Is it worry? Is it panic? Maybe it's anger or bitterness or resentment. Maybe it's gambling, or alcohol, or drugs, or pornography, or sexual addiction. 
Maybe it's bigotry, lying, grief, gossip, divorce, criticism, perfectionism, procrastination, codependency. Are you a control freak? Are you a workaholic? Do you overspend? Do you overeat? Do you undereat in your struggles, bulimia or anorexia? Do you have a relationship wounds that are so great that you have trust issues with people? Do you ever know that something is wrong, but you do it anyway? Do you ever say you're going to clean up your language, but the profanity just keeps coming out? Do you often find it hard to go to sleep? Or do you find it hard to get up in the morning? Do you struggle with depression? Do you struggle with envy? contentment, insecurity? You got a memory from your past that haunts you? You got some unresolved guilt that paralyzes you? Well, if you answered yes to any one of these, welcome to the human race. Okay? Because we all need to get well in some way. We all need to get well in some way. You see, this is a series, folks, for everybody. That's why you should invite your friends next week. This is a series for everybody. Although God is working in many of our lives and many of us are growing closer to Him, the JAR still is a community of fellow strugglers. Like I've said many times before, there are no perfect people allowed at the JAR. If you're perfect then you should go to another church. And when you get to that church, you'll mess it up too. Because there are no perfect people. We're all in this thing together, and I want people to know that you're not alone. Don't think you are. Now here's kind of the key verse that we're going to look at throughout these six weeks for the series. It's in Isaiah 57. Isaiah it was a prophet in the Old Testament a preacher, a person who spoke on God's behalf, and this is what he says. And let's uh, read this out loud together. I have seen what they do, but I will heal them anyway. I will lead them and comfort those who mourn. Then words of praise will be on their lips. May they have peace both near and far, for I will heal them all. Here, Jesus says, I know all you've done. I know what you're currently doing right now. And I still want to heal you. If you're feeling lost, I will lead you. If you're feeling overwhelmed, I want to comfort you. If you're worried, if you're anxious, if you're stressed out, if you're confused, if you're scared, I want to give you you peace. If you feel like you're drowning, God says, I want to be the one who reaches down to help rescue you. All you have to do is reach up toward me and come to the surface and breathe. That's our key verse this uh, series. I have seen what they do, but I will heal them anyway. Now let's go back to the uh, first question that I asked. It's kind of the key question for our series. Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? It's kind of like uh, a double Jeopardy question. You know, you play Jeopardy, and then at the end, you get a chance 
to uh, bet it all. And uh, so the category is the Bible, and here is our answer. The baby Moses was floating in this river. Okay? What is it? Okay, and the question to this is, what is denial? Okay, what is denial? Now, I've learned that denial, folks, is not a river in Egypt. Okay? Denial is this. Who, me? I don't have no problem. I don't have any issues. I'm good. I'm fine. I'm just fine. I don't have any hang-ups, no habits, no hurts. I've got no addiction. It's not an addiction. I can stop any time I want to. I can handle this. I've got my life under control. Can I just challenge you uh, today that if you're at that place, I can tell you whether or not you are there or you aren't. Ask the people who know you best and ask them, do I have a problem with this? Do I have an issue with trying to control things? I love the story of the little boy who went to the grocery store and he came to uh, the desk and there was a clerk there and uh, the clerk said, hey, how can I help you? And the little boy said, I need some Tide. He said, well, what do you need Tide for? He said, well, I want to wash my cat. He's like, you want to wash your cat? He's like, yeah. He's like, well, I think Tide's a little bit strong for you to wash your cat. He's like, no, 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 no. I really want the Tide. And so the clerk's like, okay, and sold it to him. Well, the next day the little boy comes back, and the clerk is there, and he goes, well, how did it go? And the little boy's kind of sad, and he goes, Cat died. He's like, I told you, you cannot wash a cat with Tide. It just doesn't work. He said, well, it wasn't the Tide that got him. It was the spin cycle. (laughs) Some of you cat lovers right now, you're just like, oh. I'm not one of them, just to let you know. Well, folks, I don't know how you ever get into living in the spin cycle. But people do it all the time. And they stay in that spin cycle forever. I mean, they just deny that they're even in it. And so they try to just make everything around them seem fine. I mean, even though we feel like we're going crazy with whatever the issue is, we won't stop to acknowledge the insanity of what our problem is. Paul, the guy who wrote over half of the New Testament, I think gave like the best words on going through the spin cycle in life. And this is what he said. I don't understand myself at all, for I really want to do what is right, but I can't. I do what I don't want to, what I hate. I know perfectly well 
that what I am doing is wrong and my bad conscience proves that I agree with these laws, I am breaking free. Or that I'm breaking. But I can't help myself because I'm no longer doing it. It is sin inside me that is stronger than I am that makes me do these evil things. Folks, that's like the story of my life. Have you ever been there before? Maybe you're there now. I do not do what I want to do. But what I don't want to do, that's the very thing that I do. And you just keep spinning that and spinning that and spinning that. And it's a lie. It is truly a cycle. And just a clarification for those of you who are Christ followers in this room today. Sometimes this scripture gets so bent out of context and it like gives people an excuse to go through life going, you know what, I'm just a worthless person. I'm never going to get any better. I'm just bad. Well, the Bible knows none of that. There is no worthless people in the eyes of God. And that label sinner, you see, folks, that is old to us. The Scripture says this, if any person is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. I mean, you can just check this out in the Bible. If you begin by reading any of Paul's letters to the people of Ephesus or to Corinth or to Colossae, what you will find with every single one of them, how does he address them? Saints! He doesn't say, dear sinners. He says, dear saints. You see, we have a new identity in Christ. We've been forgiven. We've been set free. We're a new creation. So Paul, when he writes this, isn't saying, I'm just no good. He's saying, I'm so frustrated that it seems like the very thing that I want to stop, I keep getting into. I get into a spin cycle, and I try to do everything to cover it up. He's saying, I really want to do the right thing because now I know that that's the best way to live. The only problem is I keep turning away from that and I keep doing things that I don't want to do. And as a believer in Christ, he knows he's forgiven. He knows he's secure with his identity as a much-loved child of God. So what happens when Paul writes this, he simply is honestly acknowledging, he's like, this is frustrating. I don't want to be this person. I don't want to do these things. But he's also acknowledging, I can't deny it, even though the rest of the world wants to live a life of denial. When you turn to Christ, all that denial in the world has got to be cut Because all the image management, all the willpower, all the prideful self-help, all the playing God, it's not going to work. If it could have, it would have. But it can't, so it won't. So let me ask you this morning. What's got you living in the spin cycle today? What is it in your life that you are living in the spin cycle. If you're there, you'll know that the biggest issue is fear. 
Sometimes it's a fear of discovery. Any of you ever uh, felt like Adam before in Genesis 3.10? The scripture says this. Adam says, I was afraid because I was naked. In other words, I was exposed. So I, what's it say? Hid. We just hide. Maybe that's why, for some of you, when you're at a restaurant, you'll find yourself going to the bathroom real quick and purging yourself. Maybe it's why you pop a a breath mint into your mouth when you're at the office because you had one too many beers at lunch. Or maybe it's why you go to a dark corner at 2 a.m. in the morning with your computer so that you can look at a forbidden website. Or maybe you hide some pot in your house around different places so that no one else will know where it's at, but you know. Maybe that's why you get your friends to lie for you. Maybe that's why you doctor finances at work in such a way that you can create this elaborate story always kind of covering your tracks. You know, you go through life constantly and your greatest fear is that you'll be exposed. And so what do you do? You live a life of hiding. And the reason I know this is because I've been there. You've been there. You live in the spin cycle and then you crash into a pile of sin. And so what you do is you go back to God and you say, God, I promise that I'm not going to do this again. And then you get back up the next morning or a couple days later and you find yourself doing the same thing. And again, Paul writes in Romans chapter 7. He says this. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's words. In other words, he says, I believe that these are the best things to do in my life. But it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel. And just when I least expect it, they take charge. Friends, it takes enormous amounts of energy to continue to do the spin cycle, to make sure that everything's covered up, that people can't see. And it's like this cyclical effect that goes on. You try harder, you fail, you feel guilty, you experience shame, you hide, and then you promise that you won't do it again. And then you try harder, you fail, you feel guilty, you experience shame, you hide, and then you promise that you won't do it again. And it goes on and on and on, and it gets exhausting over time. David, the greatest king of uh, Israel, who was a man after God's own heart, the only person in Scripture that we're told was that, he even understood. He says this in Psalm 32, My strength evaporated like water on a sunny day until I finally admitted all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide them. You see, folks, what the spin cycle looks like is simply a road to self-destruction. And there's an equation that goes with it, and it goes like this. Self-deception plus self-reliance leads to self-destruction. 
No matter how good we are at lying to ourselves, no matter how much we want to deny the truth, self-deception along with self-reliance will always lead to self-destruction. This week I uh, found a letter that was written from a guy who was battling an addiction, but he wrote it from the addiction side uh, to where the addiction was writing to him. And this is what it said. Dear friend, I've come to visit you once again. I love to see you suffer mentally, physically, spiritually, and socially. I want to make you restless so you can never relax. I want to make you agitated and irritable so everything and everybody makes you uncomfortable. I want you to be confused and depressed so you can't think clearly and positively. I want to make you angry and hateful toward the world for the way it is and for the way you are. I want you to feel sorry for yourself and blame everybody else but me for the way things are. I want you to be deceitful and untrustworthy. And I want you to manipulate and con as many people as possible. I want you to be fearful and paranoid for no reason at all. I want you to wake up during all hours of the night screaming for me. You know you can't sleep without me. I'm even in your dreams. I want you to be the first thing when you I, I want to be the first thing you think of when you wake up in the morning and I want you to be the last thing that you think of before you black out at night. I'd rather kill you. But I'd be happy to put you back in the hospital, another institution or jail. I love to watch you slowly go insane. I love to see all the physical damage that I'm causing you. I can't help but sneer and chuckle when you shiver and shake, when you freeze and sweat at the same time, and when you wake up with your sheets and blankets soaking wet. Yes, it's amazing how much destruction I can be to your internal organs while at the same time working on your brain, destroying it bit by bit. I deeply appreciate how much you're sacrificing for me, the countless good jobs you have given up for me, all the friends whom you deeply cared for and you gave them up for me, and especially for the loved ones, your family, the most important people in your world. You even threw them away for me. I cannot express in words the gratitude I have for the loyalty you have for me. You sacrificed all these beautiful things in life just to devote yourself completely to me. But do not despair, my friend. On me, you can always depend. For after you've lost all these things, you can still depend on me to take even more. You can depend on me to keep you in a living hell, forever yours, your addiction. Now, some of you right now, you've just listened to those words in your life. That was written to me because of what I'm going through. Others of you are saying, Bunch, that's not me. I'm not addicted to anything. But for some of you, this is the habit that you have. You have the need to be needed. The need to be needed. You're always trying to rescue somebody in your family. You're trying to rescue that guy or that girl. But you keep trying... And you even pay for their bills, you take blame for their mistakes, you lie for them, if need be. Even though everyone around you, your parents, your friends, your own heart, God himself is telling you that this guy or this girl is not worth it, and they're going to 
use you and spit you out, even that you continue to go back, even if there's abuse and you're bruised at times. Folks, sometimes the spin cycle that people are on is not an addiction, but it's codependency. Now, for others of you, you're sitting there and you're like, all right, bunch, nice story, way to, you know, talk about stuff, but I'm not addicted to anything. I don't have any codependency issues. You know what your issue is? You got hurt by somebody so badly from your past that you have never let it go. And you carry bitterness and resentment like an addiction. And you're addicted every day to waking up and you get upset when you hear the name or you think of the person and it's all there and your heart is overwhelmed. And you deny that it affects you at all. But every time you think of the person, it's like immediately anger or sadness or depression or resentment or bitterness comes upon you and you're in the spin cycle. You know what the definition of insanity is, right? Insanity is this, doing the same things over and over, expecting different results. You just kept doing the same things over and over, that's insanity. It's staying in the spin cycle of misery, thinking that tomorrow it's going to get better. Now let me ask you something, as your pastor and as somebody who loves you, how bad does it have to get before you decide that you need some help? How bad does your hurt or your pain or the memory have to become before you break down and say, I want to get well? Unfortunately, in human nature, this is what often happens. Most of us won't change until the pain becomes greater than our fear of change. You see, we all fear change, and so what happens is we never change until the pain actually gets greater than our fear for change, and that's when we change. We don't change when we see the light. We change when we feel the heat. You see, when the the marriage isn't going so great, and things are falling apart, or you get a phone call in the middle of the night, or you end up in the emergency room, or you end up in jail. And please listen to me. Most importantly, folks, I hope many of you are listening to God today. Save yourself from some pain. See the light and actually say, I'll do whatever I can to swim to the surface so that I can finally breathe again. You know, some people say this to me all the time. They're like, well... You know, they just got to hit rock bottom first. And let me just be on the record of saying this. No, you don't. You don't have to hit rock bottom first. That's dumb. You don't have to hit rock bottom. But you do have to humble yourself. You have to be broken and want to get well. But please, you don't have to hit rock bottom. You don't have to keep on hurting yourself and hurting the people around you. You can change. Just see the light and swim towards the surface for help. Now here at the jar, 
we have a ministry called Celebrate Recovery. We have this big banner that's up there. We paid a couple hundred dollars for this banner. People put this thing up every single week. And you know what? I think many people look at it and they're like, it's not for me. I'm good. I'm fine. I don't have any issues. Yes, you do. You've got a hurt or a habit or a hang-up. And you're not well, but you just keep doing the spin cycle over and over again. The greatest thing you could do is say, you know what, this Thursday I'm going to give it a chance. I'm going to go at 7 o'clock. And I'm going to check it out. Now some of you sit there and you're like, oh yeah, that's oh those poor people that are addicted to alcohol and drugs. That's who that's for. No, it's not. It's for anybody who has any issue that you can imagine that is not keeping you from being well. So depression, anger, food addiction, alcohol, drugs, resentment, bitterness. Stop denying your heart. Stop denying your habit. Stop denying your hang-up. And Celebrate Recovery can actually help you to get well. I mean, what's going to be so sad is that some of you, you know, it's going to be 20 years from now, and we're still going to have the big sign. We'll probably be in a different building, and there'll be more people, and you'll still be sitting there, and you're just like, God's saying, if you would have just taken a step on April 7th, 2013, you would have been so much more whole. Now, some of you, you may not have a hurt habit or hang-up that is controlling your life right now, but you're in a spiritual crisis right now. You're in a spiritual spin cycle. You keep kind of doing the church thing, and then you kind of drift away, and then you come back. And and what you need to do is say, I'm drawing a line in the sand, and I'm committing myself to Jesus Christ. For some of you, baptism next week when I teach the class, it should be, I hope right now that some of you are getting sick to your stomach. I really do. I may pray that all week. That if you have not accepted Jesus Christ, what are you waiting for? Are you waiting for something to come down? You don't have to be perfect. You don't have it all together. But you have to finally come to the point where you say, you know what, I'm going to follow Him. I may not do it perfectly, but as long as I know, I'm going to follow Him. Because then you start getting well. No one gets well without God. No one. My wife's been gone the last few days, so if I sound a little preachy, it's because I haven't been able to preach to anyone, you know? (laughs) So the next six weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to take this word breathe, and for each one of them, we're going to have a specific focus of what each letter means. So this week is B, and this is it. Blessed are the broken. So sounds so weird, doesn't it? Blessed are the broken. And here's the first step, the first recovery step to walking free and experiencing freedom in your life. And it's this. I must admit that I'm powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing and my life has become unmanageable. In fact, let's read this one out loud together, okay? Let's all read it out loud. I must admit that I'm powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing and my life has become unmanageable. 
That's where you come to the point in your life and you say, enough. No more pretending. This is insane. I have a problem. I need some help. I can't do this on my own. I really want to get well. One of my favorite songs growing up as a kid was the song Desperado. Remember that? Desperado. And this is what it said. Why don't you come to your senses? Come on down from your fences. Throw open the gate. It may be raining, but there is a Father above you. You've got to let somebody love you before it's too late. And the reason I love that song is because it reminds me of my favorite chapter in the Bible. It's Luke chapter 15. I'd encourage all of you to read it this week. But there's one particular story in there. It's a story of a young guy who took his dad's money and he wasted it on wild and destructive behavior. And he ends up busted and broken and bankrupt, drowning in misery. He hits rock bottom. And the Bible says this, when he came to his senses, then he changed. When he came to his senses, then he changed. You see, we've got to come to the point in our life where we finally just say, this stinks. Enough! This is crazy. Why am I living like that? Why am I feeling anxious every morning at night? I want to go home. I want to get well. I love this scripture, again from Paul. He says this. He says, we felt we were doomed to die and saw how powerless we were to help ourselves. But that was good. For then we put everything into the hands of God who alone could save us. You see, friends, there is power in powerlessness. When we humble ourselves, when we admit our weaknesses, God's strength has permission then to reach down and to supernaturally bring us out of whatever the spin cycle is that we're in. He alone has the power to help us walk free. And you know what? This is what I was thinking this week. There's only one thing in the universe that is more powerful and stronger than the power of God. You know what it is? This should have you like on the edge of your seats. What's stronger than the power of God? It's His desire to love you and help you and rescue you and lead you wherever you want to go. He will lead your life. If you turn to him. Bill W., who was one of the founders of AA, referred to his and others' miraculous release from alcoholism this way. He said, we found that God could and would if we sought. Think about that. We found out that God could and would if he were sought. And if that's true, and it's true for millions of recovering addicts, then it's also possible that God can't and won't if he isn't. If God isn't sought, folks, you can't get well. And I think God gives us kind of this double-edged sword, really, of free will. He says, do you really want to get well? It's really up to you to decide. You see, the pathway to freedom is this. You surrender your life. You just surrender your life once and all to the supernatural power of God. 
But as long as we live in denial of a problem, as long as we try to do image management, as long as we try to put uh, on the face that everything is fine in my life, as long as we try to hang on to our pride and to fix things, as long as we try to excuse or rationalize every time that behavior gets us into trouble, then we will lack the power to change. The power, folks, lies when we say we're powerless. Blessed are the broken. When Jesus started his public ministry, he did so with a sermon. It's the greatest sermon that has ever been told. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. He was on a mountaintop, and this is how he began it. He said, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, the busted, the broken, the bankrupt. Blessed are there, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. For they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. He's saying how fortunate it is for those who will simply acknowledge their brokenness before God. Who will acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy and their need and hunger for God. If you do that, he says, you'll be comforted. If you do that, you'll be filled. You will turn your life to God because He could and would if He were sought. I met uh, Jib Baker several years ago. And when I first met Jib, if you looked on the outside of his life, you'd say, man, this guy's got it all together. He uh, had a great job. He was making six figures. Had a wonderful wife and two kids. But the spin cycle of addiction hit him, and it brought him to his knees. And this past week, I asked him, I said, hey, hey, Jib, could I share your story? And he's like, oh, man, I'd, I'd love if you'd do that. And this is what he said. I'm a 41-year-old Christian that has been sober for four years and three months from alcohol and drug addiction. My first experience with alcohol was in high school. I remember two things about it. First was that it didn't turn me into the angry stranger my father was when he drank, because he was an alcoholic also. And second, alcohol did for me what nothing else had. It numbed my anxiety and emotional pain. I only drank socially in high school and college, but when I hit graduate school, then it changed. There I began to use alcohol to deal with loneliness and the high pressure of the chemistry program that I was in. What started out as a few drinks on the weekend allowed me to blow off some steam, progress through the years and through my marriage until I became, quote, a functional alcoholic. I say functional, but I was only functional in the sense that I never lost my job And I only drank in the evening, every evening. I also felt that my drinking never turned me into the angry, scary person that I remembered my father being, so it wasn't that big of a problem in my mind. The truth is that it was a huge problem, and deep down I knew it. I had been married six years when we walked into the Jar Community Church for the first time. My wife Kendall and I had attended church off and on throughout our marriage, and we were both Christians, but I wasn't living like it, 
and we never found a place that we felt like was home. That changed when I came to the jar. It was the first time that I began to feel that God was loving and not condemning. But by then, my God was alcohol. It was where I turned for every answer and to deal with every emotion. In August of 2007, God began to allow the fruits of my alcoholism uh, to be reaped. And I came down with a severe case of necrotizing pancreatitis. While in the hospital, I was given a 50-50 chance to live. Pastor Chris and another person from the church came and laid their hands on me and I prayed. I confessed for the first time that I struggled with alcohol and through a powerful moment of honesty and prayer, my life was spared. My obsession to drink also left and again, I wish I could say that it was the end of my struggles, but it was not. I had not developed true character nor the ability to daily trust God through dealing with life struggles. I also have an addicted personality. So after a month in the hospital on heavy pain medications and several months at home on them, drugs became a new addiction. My wife, Kendall, had no idea how bad the problem was. But when she walked in on me crushing the pills and snorting them, she knew she had to get out. She had turned a blind eye to my problems for far too long, and I was not a safe person to be around. When I received my divorce papers, I hit rock bottom. My near-death experience was not as bad as that day. You see, even though I didn't act like it, my family was the most important thing in my life, and I had destroyed it. But I was in pretty deep, pretty deep, into the pit of addiction. And it was going to take some time, effort, and prayer to get out of it. God wasn't going to just fix things in a day. He wanted me to change at a deep level. And to do that, I needed to be completely broken. After this, I entered rehab at Fairbanks Hospital, where I was first introduced to the 12 steps of recovery. This was a start to leaving and to learning to live a new way of life. I relapsed several times and even threatened to commit suicide, but God remained faithful to me, and the more I sought him, the more peace I experienced. Finally, on January 15, 2009, I entered a life of sobriety for good. I surrendered everything I had to God. I attended Celebrate Recovery and AA meetings regularly. During this time, my uh, during the same time, my wife, Kendall, attended Celebrate Recovery with her own battle of codependency and some other hurts and habits. We healed separately, and then a couple of years ago, we started dating and doing some counseling together. We processed a pile of hurt, but eventually came reconciliation. And on February 17th of this year, Kendall and I were remarried as as husband and wife. There is no doubt in my mind that reconciliation of marriage would not have been possible without God. For the moment we finally separated for good, Kendall and I both gave up our own desires and sought God's guidance rather than ours. At times, it seemed like he was leading us in two different directions. But looking back, we can see that every step was necessary and part of the plan to bring us together. We are not perfect, 
Some people told me this phrase, imperfect human being was redundant. We agree, as we know that we are far from perfection and are continually finding new layers of the onion of our character defects that need to be changed. Kendall and I are still the same people deep down that we married uh, one another on August of 1997. But like a sculpture who sees art in a block of stone, we have begun to allow God to chip away at the parts of us that are the artwork he created us to be. And whenever there are problems or arguments or disagreements or issues, we both ask this question, what is my part in this? We have learned that our part is the only thing that we can really do anything about. And with God's power, we continue to see that when we do our part, God takes care of the rest. Today, I have freedom that no substance can ever take the place of. Today, I am spiritually alive. You know, when I asked Jib if he could, uh, if we could share his story, he was like, absolutely. And I said, well, why do you want to share your story? He said, because I don't want anyone else to have to go through what I went through. God can and he will if he sought. And the question I have for you this morning is, do you want to get well? James chapter 4 says this, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Blessed are the broken. And I was thinking today, that for some of you, maybe what you need is just a couple of minutes where you can just surrender whatever your hurt, habit, or hang-up is to God. That you could just totally surrender it and say, God, I want you to take this. And you can come up to breathe the grace of God. So take a moment right now, just between you and God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would come and move in each of your lives to surrender that thing that you need to.
you need prayer for anything, they would love to uh, pray for you. Let's pray. God, thank you that you want to heal us and rescue us and lead us. You want us to be able to break through the surface and to breathe. I want to thank you, God, that you are the only one who can get us off the crazy cycle. And I thank you for what you're doing in the hearts of people right now. I thank you for the honesty that some people are having for the very first time. I thank you for blinders that are falling off of others. I thank you for some truth-filled conversations that are going to happen this afternoon. And I thank you, God, for people who are willing to surrender themselves to you today so that they could get off the spin cycle and get into the grace cycle of life. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week. Know that you're loved in this place. If you're here for the first time, please pick up a bag at the connection team.